Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Steve Isinger, and I want to welcome you to our Global Impact Conference event this evening. And we especially want to welcome any of you who are visiting here um, from another uh, place. Uh, this evening, we are hosting a panel discussion that we are calling Being Winsome Ambassadors in Our Now Global Community. Our goal is to show how Christ-centered uh, Christ relationships are the key to reconciling people of different races, classes, and cultures. And for that, we have a great panel tonight. Um, you should all have a handout which describes the biographical um, synopsis of the people that are going to be sharing. Uh, we especially want to uh, welcome Dr. Peter Chaw tonight, and I'm just going to say a little few words about him in just a minute. Let me just first give you kind of an overview of what we're going to do. Uh, Peter is actually going to share a little bit of a biblical framework for our discussion before the panel comes up. Then we'll have about 75 minutes uh, for our panel. Midway, uh, our moderator, Phil Johnston, will look to the audience for a couple questions. And then we'll come back to some prepared questions. And then we'll have another time of uh, questions and answers at the end. And then followed by some dessert. So um, again, we want to thank you for all for coming. I just want to, again, uh, introduce uh, Dr. Peter Chaw. He's the professor of church, culture, and society at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where he has taught since 1997. Prior to this, though, it is most interesting to note that Peter has roots here in Faith Church. Because in 1985 to 1986, he was a pastoral intern under John Crocker. In fact, Peter and I shared office space here at the church back in the old office area. I'm not sure where that is now. Um, and then Peter, from 1985 to 1988, served as a campus staff member of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship under the leadership of our late Faith Church member, Don Fields. So uh, Peter testified in a couple meetings earlier that Faith Church really led to a lot of his shaping um, as he was getting involved in ministry. Peter and his wife, Phyllis, have been married for 32 years, and they are proud parents of two adult children, Nathaniel and Elaine. So, Peter, please come. Well, let me just pray for us as we, we start. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be your ambassadors, to represent your wonderful good news and your love to the world around us. And in an ever seemingly increasingly fractured society, we long to be um, ambassadors that bring honor to you and show that love in our church. And to that end, we dedicate this evening. We pray that you would guide our words and our thoughts, our questions. We pray that all would be honoring to you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Um, good evening. Um, 
I'm told that there are many of you here who are representing different congregations, possibly. So I'm wondering, uh, before even we begin the actual program, if you might just uh, stand and say hello to uh, friends who are gathered here. And if you don't know some folks, if you could just introduce yourself to them. Uh, so if we could just all get up and do a little uh, hellos to one another, since this is a family gathering. Okay, if we could uh, gather. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> um, as uh, Steve mentioned, um, uh, I've been married for 32 years, and our wedding took place in the old sanctuary building of a faith missionary church back then. So I have a very fond memory of uh, this congregation and uh, members of this church. I feel in some ways I, this is a bit of a homecoming for me, and uh, glad to participate in this weekend's wonderful kingdom event we have here. Before we get into the panel discussion, I would like to just offer a very brief biblical framework that the Steve asked me to do. And I'd like you to, uh, if you have a Bible, please open to Psalm 133. Or these days with a smartphone, you could also pull up the biblical passages. But Psalm 133, which is a very familiar passage to many of us. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. As you know, this is one of the collections of psalms called Songs of Ascents. It's called Songs of Ascents because these were the particular songs that God's people sang together as they were journeying up to the city of Jerusalem on top of mountain to worship God several times a year. It's a journey song. It's a pilgrimage song. Now imagine yourself as, you, as one of the thousands of people who are going up that hill singing this song together. As you look around, you may see some who are older and some who are younger. You may see that as just by how they're dressed, some might be wealthy and some who are not. But then as you're looking around, there are some faces you recognize because they're part of your family or part of your village. But the vast majority of others who are traveling with you and singing this song of worship, you may not recognize them because they're from other tribes, people who live in other parts of the land. And yet, even though you don't know them personally, as you sing this song, worshiping same God, there is the sense of oneness, unity, 
that you are experiencing and expressing. And that's what verse 1 is celebrating. Oh, you God's people, when you dwell together in unity, how good and pleasant and blessed it is. Today, as you know, United States as a society is becoming increasingly more diverse in so many ways. But did you also know that Church of United States is also becoming very diverse? I grew up in a Korean immigrant church. We came to the United States when I was uh, in sixth grade. My dad was a Presbyterian minister. There are many, many Korean American immigrant churches across the country. But I wonder if you knew this. Back in South Korea, only 20% or so of people in South Korea go to church regularly. South Korea is not a Christian country. However, when Korean immigrants do come to the United States, up to 75% of them regularly attend the church. Now, Japan, many of you have heard how that nation is such a difficult country for gospel to penetrate into. Less than 1% of Japanese population go to church regularly. But did you know that percentage goes up to 35% among Japanese Americans who live in the United States? Somehow God is using this massive migration of people. Those whom God is bringing to the United States, many are now open to the gospel and many become Christian and they too join this pilgrimage song of singing God's goodness and greatness as we do this life journey together. How good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell in unity. So one of the things we'll be talking about this evening as a panel is how in fact are we as our church is becoming so diverse? How do we think about dwelling together in unity is one of the focus we'll be having today. Now, why is God's people dwelling together in unity such a blessing? Well, verse 2 and 3 explains that. So verse 2, it is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. Now, to more modern readers like you and I, we can't quite see how this is a picture of a blessing. <laughs> I mean, we use money to get oil out of our hair, right? <laughs> Here is a picture of a person drenched in oil. Of course, to Old Testament Jews, they knew that this reference was about Exodus chapter 29, when Aaron and his sons were being consecrated to be used by God for his special purpose. Or to translate it into this context of this uh, psalm, somehow when God's people come together and live together, Holy Spirit does a particular work of consecrating, of healing, of cleansing of God's people for his purpose. Especially when people from very different backgrounds come together and learn to live together in unity, God does a very much a work of sanctification among us. Many of us who've been married for a while, we know what this passage is talking about doing life together long term. God uses those moments to sanctify us. 
Now, on my campus, we last four or five years, we have created this new gathering on our Divinity School campus every Wednesday. About 80 to 100 or so students come together. And it's a very multiracial group of students. Every week we come together to have a lunch together and to talk about some of the critical issues that our society and our church are facing and how to think about this biblically and how to think about as a future leaders of the church. Now, it's the biggest gathering on our campus as these students come together every week to have a conversation with each other. And what I notice is that through that time of gathering, these students are not just picking up new knowledge or information, but I think God is also changing their heart. How they hear each other, developing deeper sense of empathy for one another. So when my African-American brother is in pain about certain things, I'm not just hearing as another information, but I'm beginning to feel his pain as well. One of the, uh, our graduates who recently left our school and that Mosaic Ministries, that's what we call it at Trinity too, as he was leaving to become a pastor of an all-black church in Southside Chicago, he said something like this. My four years of participating in this multiracial community life, listening to each other's story, has ruined me for life. <laughs> What's he talking about? Well, he's about to go back to the church that he grew up in. But then because of this experience that he had, he now knows he cannot just go back as just a black pastor. He has seen the kind of kingdom experience of God's people from so many different backgrounds that prepared him to be a different kind of pastor. God's work of consecration done as we learn to do life together in unity. What does that look like? We will talk about it in a panel tonight. And then finally, the final blessing is verse three. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. If the blessing of a second verse is about what would happen to us internally, the healing, the cleansing, the consecration, the third verse, the blessing is how God will now use our unity among God's people to witness to the world outside. See, the dew of Hermon, an amount, uh, dew of Hermon, the reference there is this. As many of you, some of you may have visited the Holy Land, Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain toward the northern border. So you may be in the part of the Palestine where it's dry and you don't see much of a green vegetation, but you look at Mount Hermon. Because of its height, there is always dew falling every day, so there's a green vegetation on that mountain all the time. So where you are might be dry, but you look at the mountain and you are reminded of the abundant life. And that's what this passage is promising. As the world looks in to community of God's people who are dwelling together in unity, they will somehow see the abundance of life. It is there. That's not elsewhere. 
you know, as our United States is becoming racially and ethnically more diverse. Tragically, the relationship between many of these groups have become more and more conflict-ridden, and that conflict had deepened. It's a reality of a painful reality of our human fallenness. Now, the secular organizations are trying to address this, but at best, what they aim for is tolerance. That's what they teach our students and kids. You gotta be more tolerant. But you know what scripture teaches us? Because of the power of the gospel, no, it's not tolerance, but it's a full reconciliation in and through Christ is what scripture offers us. Boy, there's a tons of difference between tolerance and a reconciliation. And as the world sees the God's church displaying this power of the gospel through reconciliation and unity, they will begin to see the abundant life in God's church that they don't see outside. In fact, isn't that what Jesus prayed for his believers in his church on John 17, night before his arrest? Among so many things he could have prayed for, from John 17, verse 21 down, what you see is Jesus praying for unity among his people so that the world would come to know Christ was indeed sent by God above. How do we be that winsome witness in community is what our panel this evening will be focusing on. So welcome to our gathering. That was a sort of biblical framework of how unity among us delights our God and it displays the full gospel's power. So we're going to now invite everyone to the seating up there and then fill Introducing the panel, not much, but uh, I hope you got an idea from what Steve and Peter have said, what our goals are tonight, and that's to explore how we as a church can, can be more biblical and more effective in reaching out to the ethnically, uh, culturally diverse neighborhood that we're a part of. Um, you should have your uh, handouts that will give you a more thorough description of the bios of the people on the panel. If you notice, we have a, a diversity of uh, cultures even on the panel. Uh, Peter mentioned that uh, he is a first-generation uh, immigrant from Korea. Just in case you need some proof, though, I have here a collector's edition of the Faith Missionary Church Directory <laughs> from 19, 1987. On the bottom of page 6, Cha, Peter and Phyllis. The address, 5255 Oak Leaf Drive. So you were a part of Faith Church from yes. those early days, right. and uh, we welcome you back. Uh, Curtis Cotson uh, is, uh, uh, well, I need to get my notes out here. <laughs> He's uh, a pastor at uh, Solid Word Bible Church, and uh, is, uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, and is, uh, he shares with uh, Pastor Louis uh, being born in New York City, right. uh, so there'll there'll be some diversity in uh, in their backgrounds there. 
Pastor Luis, if you, if you haven't known, is the uh, pastor of Iglesia de Fe that meets in this, in this very room. They're about to uh, celebrate their third anniversary <coughs> next month. And uh, Luis, I think I, I see you as being someone who is perpetually positive. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, Lena Lynch is, uh, I've just come to know her through our community group in the last year or so, is new to Faith Church with her husband, Curtis. Uh, she has brought a new dimension of culinary delights to our uh, community group uh, and uh, shares with Peter, actually, being a first-generation immigrant. Uh, hers from uh, Taiwan and Vietnam. And I think you all know Pastor Jeff at the end there, who uh, has been here for two years. And uh, I think has the unique uh, role that he played in the previous church of being a pastor where there was considerable cultural conflict being very close to Ferguson, Missouri, if you remember that uh, hotbed of uh, a few years ago. So I'll be addressing questions specifically to uh, certain panel members. Listen as we go along and um, be prepared as we get uh, further on into the, the meeting uh, to respond with some questions of your own. But first for uh, Jeff, uh, Curtis, and Luis. Uh, why is it necessary to even talk about the issues of race and culture in the church today? Since, for example, the Bible in Galatians 3, and let me read that passage where it talks about this. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the question is, if with that example, since scripture talks about how we are one in Christ, don't we risk creating more division in the church by focusing on our differences? Isn't it better to say that we should be colorblind in our approach to one another? So uh, Jeff, Curtis, and Luis, uh, what do you think about that uh, challenge? Uh, should we be talking about this issue? Uh, yeah, I, I, yes. Uh, all right. Amen. I, I think, uh, so a couple of thoughts. One is, uh, actually a pastor that I worked with at Salem in uh, Florissant uh, put it this way in a sermon, and, and I really appreciated this. Every, every race, every culture reflects something of God's truth and grace and beauty, and every culture and race is broken in need of redemption, which means uh, I have blind spots, we all have blind spots that we need other people to help us see. And I think particularly, I'm just speaking for myself, I'm white, I'm American, I've grown up in this culture, and uh, even just looking statistically, something like uh, 50 years ago, uh, something uh, along the lines of 80% of people in America would have identified as white Christians. Uh, and so I think for many of us who grew up in this culture as white Americans, there was just all of these things came together and it seemed that to be white was to be American, was to be Christian, and that's what's normal. But there's no normal, in a sense, in the kingdom of God. And that's why we need one another. We need to uh, learn from each other and benefit from the perspectives, the experiences of other people who are also part of the kingdom of God uh, to, to recognize, uh, I mean, for one thing, Jesus wasn't white. He wasn't American. He didn't speak English. Uh, and that tells me something about uh, even Jesus might have something to say about my culture and my race and my perspectives, and, and that's going to be true for all of us. Uh, so it's not about 
races battling against each other, uh, but it, it's about uh, learning from each other and celebrating the uniqueness and, and growing together into what God has for us to be. It really has to be some dialogue about that. Uh, both Curtis and uh, Luis are pastors of churches that are non-Anglos. Uh, wh how do you feel about that question? Uh, should we be talking about this? I think we have to talk about it. I, I've, I've, I've had it said to me that I'm colorblind, which um, typically we see that as a deficiency. If there's someone that is colorblind, you lack something that um, was intended um, from the beginning, and that is the ability to distinguish and to see the beauty in color. And I think that that was intended by the Lord. Um, and that God indeed created. Uh, when I look at the landscape of humanity and all the beauty and all the colors, just like we do in spring, we don't see, we don't say, I only see green and trees, but we see all the beauties of the flowers and everything that's there. And that was intended, um, I believe, by God, our creator, so that we experience that. And I think he intended that as well, I believe, as we look out over the landscape of humanity. Yes, it has fallen, and thus that needs to be redeemed. But I do believe that there is this unity in diversity that just amazes people. When we see everything, all the colors that come out in spring, and yet it represents one thing, spring. Um, and I think when it comes to the body of Christ, as um, Dr. Cha spoke earlier, this whole issue of people looking on the outside in and seeing diversity and yet this unity of diversity screams the power of the gospel. Yes. And I think when when we say I'm colorblind, what we're, what we're doing is that we are robbing that experience that I believe was intended, that we see it. And so I've had people say that to me, and I've had to say, I think I understand what you mean, but I would rather say you see my color, and it doesn't make a difference in how we live together. It makes a difference in my culture that I represent, but not in the value that I possess, not in the worth that I possess in your eyes. So I think we do need to have this conversation and so that we can uh, really magnify the beauty of the gospel. Recognize and appreciate the differences in the uh, races. Uh, Louis, in colorblindness, <clears throat> people may look at you and see what they think they see. Uh, and I had that experience in my first ministry when I had our first Spanish church. And I had one of our leaders, after six months, come up to me and say, you're a coconut. You're a coconut. And I got offended by that, uh, you know, and I came home and told Susan about it. And uh, she said, how did it go today? She says, well, Teodoro, one of our deacons came up to me and called me a coconut. And she started laughing, you know, she's rolling on the floor laughing and, you know, and I said, what is so funny about that? She said, because you are a coconut. <laughs> and what that term means is you're, you know, you're, you, you are brown on the outside in the case of uh, Latino, but you think white and everything inside of you is white or your education or so on. Uh, you know, Afro-Americans, Orioles, you know, uh, Asians, okay, we got uh, bananas, you know, Native Americans, we got, uh, you know, red apples, you know what I mean? So everybody, but this, the whole idea of the colorblindness is skewed by environment, culture, upbringing, and so on and so forth. And, you know, this whole idea of, of why we need to address this and c 
converse and talk about it is because there's different levels of the cultures of the groups of people in that culture also. And we don't stereotype just all the Latinos are like this or all the Afro-Americans are like this or all the Asians are like this. Uh, no, there's a lot of diversity in that within the creative act of God's grace in every one. And so therefore the conversation needs to continue as we dialogue and listen to those that are either coconut <laughs> or not and, uh, and, and, and enter into that. But, but you know, that's the, the goal you know, of Galatians 3.28. Sure, that's God's sovereign grace. But we have to admit we're not there. We, we're not, you know, and especially in our American culture here, we're not. And uh, Pastor Su Ra over in, in, you know, he uses the illustration, which I think is pretty good. I've, I've done it before, too. Uh, you know, there's a big salad bowl. So all the cultures are in there, all the representatives, the, the reds and the greens and everything in that salad bowl. And, and you, like, like you were saying, Curtis, the beauty of it, all the vegetables and everything. And then you open up a bottle of ranch dressing and you just smother it <laughs> completely over it, you know? And all you see is the white, you know, covering the salad and you, where are the beets and where are the radishes and where, you know? And so I think we need to kind of yeah, realize that. That's, that's true. I think we've established well that uh, we do need to have this conversation, and, and part of that conversation is listening to those that are uh, not uh, like us. Uh, the next question for Peter and uh, Lena, who share the, uh, the similarity of being first-generation immigrants. How does our ethnic identity relate to our Christian identity, if at all? Uh, is there a, a difference between our Christian identity and our uh, ethnic identity. How does that connect? Yes. So when I was doing campus ministry with the University Christian Fellowship, especially in Chicago area, I encountered many, many young people who grew up in uh, immigrant homes, immigrant churches, and they come to the university. And definitely this question about identity is often the one that they wrestle with most. Now, there are two different extremes as Christians I think we need to avoid. One extreme is sort of denial of your own ethnic heritage as if God had made a mistake, right? Uh, so it's a racial self-hatred. That's a one extreme that we need to avoid. But the other one is going the other way, uh, and that is uh, extreme ethnic pride, and that elevates your ethnicity above everything else, including your Christian identity. Then that's also problematic. So when we talk about, in, in a divinity school, about this relationship between two identities. We always affirm, because of the gospel, our primary identity is that I am a beloved child of God. That spiritual identity is what connects all of us together. That's our noun, if you will. But our ethnic identity, it's like an adjective. Yes, it's a secondary, but it is not meaningless. That God did not make a mistake in creating you to be a person, in my case, Korean-American. Now, when we become new creation in Christ, as a follower of Jesus, though, even that secondary identity, ethnic identity, picks up a new meaning. For Apostle Paul, when he was a Saul, he looked at his Jewish identity as a source for pride, as many Jews of his days have done. 
but when he became new creation in Christ, his Jewishness still mattered to him, but he picked up a very different meaning. So it means now whenever he went to a new town, he would look for fellow Jews first. And in, in Romans chapter 9, he pleaded to God for the salvation of other Jews. He clearly cared about his Jewishness, but it's now filtered through the gospel of Jesus. How do we help the next generation of our children, younger people, to understand the meaning of their ethnic identity through the lens of the gospel, and then bring that adjective and their noun together so that we are all distinctively different, but we're common in and through the gospel of Jesus? Good. Uh, and there's, there's truly a difference between those identities, but they're connected. Right. And uh, Lena, how about you? What, what's been your experience with recognizing your, the difference between your ethnic identity and Christian identity? Beautifully. So, since this is a church, I'm going to quote scriptures. Um, Acts 17, you're familiar with that passage? Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. Okay. okay. So Acts 17, you're familiar with that passage where God says that from one man he made all the nations. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. And then also the Re Revelation chapter 7, right, from every tribe and nation and language. So the scripture tell us that God's design, it is God's design for multiculturalism not only just on earth, apparently in heaven also. Mm -hmm. And so, but then Colossians chapter three balances out because it talks about since then we, you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, not on earthly things for you've died and your life is hidden in Christ. So that tells me that all believers of Jesus Christ have been raised up to a third culture. Mm -hmm. So. We who are born again on earth by this one and only Holy Spirit, no matter what background we are from, we are all in this third culture as alien. And so I, at once I'm Chinese, at once I'm Christian, and at once I'm with you. We are all supposed to be alien, in living in the third culture until that day, but even until on that day, there will be people from every tribe and language. Amen. Yeah. A new culture. Yeah, very good. <coughs> like that. Yeah. Good. I, I think, again, the backgrounds of our panelists uh, have added a lot to our uh, perceptions of, of these questions. Here's one for both Luis and Peter, uh, and this is, I think, one that's really apt for faith church. Will a biblical faith, biblically faithful gospel-focused church necessarily be ethnically and racially diverse. In other words, what should the normal be right. for a biblical, uh, faithfully gospel-focused church? Yes. In other words, are all churches called to be multi-ethnic? Right. Thank you. So this morning I had a, a privilege of engaging in conversation with the elders of this church. It was an early morning, 7.30 breakfast time. I'm not sure if we were all fully awake and <laughs> alert at that time, but it was engaging conversation. and. And there I basically shared with the elders of this uh, faith church that um, in my view, churches are called to be gospel-centered, gospel-witnessing community. That's our calling. Now, 
if the community in which we are doing our witnessing activity is multi-ethnic, and if Holy Spirit is at work at this church that lives are being transformed, and that members of this church are actively sharing the gospel, inviting the people from whatever the background, then it's not so much the goal and the calling, but the result of that would gradually become multi-ethnic because it is a church that welcomes all people to hear the gospel and respond to it. Now the intentionality part comes in then as people from different backgrounds are coming into the church, will the leadership and the members of the church steward intentionally the gift of very diverse cultural and racial and ethnic group that are coming to the church. Uh, and, and I use this word stewarding very intentionally because clearly God's spirit is at work and are bringing now these new brothers and sisters to our midst. Are we being intentional in welcoming and in creating a space within the church where they would feel as if they are members of this household of God's people, which is a biblical language of the church, and not just merely as a guests who come and observe from far what's happening. So that's the intentionality that needs to be going in, and that's how I, how I explained it. I think uh, there are times when we unintentionally elbow uh, people out of the way without realizing that's happening. Right. And so I think we need to be careful to have a right perspective. Luis, uh, you've certainly been doing that with Iglesia de Fe. But um, the practicality of this is uh, in the process of every community and every group that is in the body or in the community. Uh, you have to assess uh, first, second, and third generations and where uh, we are and where the group is uh, to be able to connect and uh, build those relationships with those people as well as you know, cause, cause uh, you know, a challenge to, for them to grow in Christ. Uh, when it comes to the diversity, uh, yes, the cultures have the identity and diversity. They have a background because of God's creative work in that person. He created them. Uh, and they are no less than or greater than any other other cultural groups, you see. So they are people created in the image of God. And that's one thing that I have, uh, you know, over 38 years tried to communicate to our people that whomever you come face to face with, this is a creation of God, see. And that starts the, th the, th the thought of respect, you know, for that person and who they are and so on. And then growing into an understanding of their culture and their background and so on, whatever it is. What happens often is that uh, our sphere of who we are in our culture or church of group, uh, you know, if we're upper middle class people, highly educated people, then uh, we're, we're trying to reach the same people that are like us, see? And, uh, and then we just don't have patience or biases or prejudices about anybody lower than that. Uh, Peter, in one of our sessions, talked about how difficult it is for that class to even connect with the middle class, you see, and go down. Or even go even further to understand the people of the context of suffering. 
we, in our Western culture, we'll diffuse that or we have our sufferings here and there, but we put a Band-Aid or fix it and go on, come on, I'll pray for you, God's healing and so on. Well, no, we got cultures that are suffering and continue to suffer and have had suffering for many years. But we, we just have a tough time entering into that. So there's a part of the diversity in the cultural groups that is um, different than our upbringing or our environment or our culture uh, for us to connect. And that's where learning and teachable and coming alongside of somebody, uh, the, the pain, the suffering, the struggle. We, we in our church here, we have talked, we have shared with you about our Venezuelan families that are coming from Venezuela and the pain that they're going through, ha have been going through, and continue to go through. And every week we hear stories of that. Well, some of us can just, you know, forget it. You know, we just, oh, oh, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll pray for you. But, you know, the actual part of us, you know, entering into that diverse culture and situation takes an extra part of our heart and energy and thinking to get involved. What happens with our Western culture, we're so involved with so many things, you know, and great things, that we don't take the space to be open and teachable to the cultures and the people groups around us, see? Or we got an answer. Here, here's $100. Go. You got, you got, you know, pay, oh, here. Here's, you know, and, and we give. We just give, you see? And uh, no. So... The health and the strength of a church that's growing in its community is entering into the diversity of the people group that is around and all that that entails and all that that means for that, for that, per, for that uh, family or that group of people. So I, I, I think it's kind of like the, in, in the scriptures we have a lot of that. And in Luke 4, Jesus was called to help the poor. Wow. You know, that we, sometimes we don't see that as a calling from a church. <laughs> oh, we would help a little here and a little there, but to call, now, now that's, we have to admit, hey, you know, we're not there, you see. Or the diversity of the Acts 4, 15, you know, okay, you Gentiles, you got to become Jews. No, that's not what Peter said. Uh-uh. You know, he didn't say that. And so it's all a learning experience. It's all a journey. Now, there isn't a, we'll fix it this week or next week or even next year. It's an ongoing learning, growing experience to minister to people. And uh, Peter reminded us that the change of evangelism uh, from the 70s and 80s to now is before we're going to share the gospel you come to know Jesus, and then we'll help you with whatever. And he said it very well. He said, no, we have to make you feel that you belong as a person. And as you come and we minister to you, then we present the gospel in a loving way. And we're seeing many, many people come to know Christ from a diversity of cultures when we hang out with them for a little bit longer, you know, and, you know, minister to them and grow in our relationship with them. So I think in, uh, this question is yes and no. Ethnically and racially diverse, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. 
And I've had the joy of doing Russian in Santa Barbara, you know, uh, Chinese, Afro Africans from the Congo, Hispanics from all walks. And when we come together to worship the Lord, oh, I mean, that's where I sense the oneness in Christ. It's, it just touches your heart. Even though you may not understand the language, the heart of worship is just beautiful. It's just beautiful and full of glory of God. I think sometimes uh, entering into relationships like that are, include carrying baggage of the people that you're, uh, you're ministering to. I don't mean to elbow uh, other panelists out of the way. If there's some relevant uh, answers you have to some of these questions, there's, uh, there are broad questions. Don't feel hesitant to uh, uh, enter in. I, I just want to say yeah. I'm very grateful that uh, Iglesia de Fe has been willing to be uh, diverse uh, because they invited me to preach one Sunday. So I, I am thankful for that. We've been modeling it, Lloyd. Different, different kinds of diversity, yes. Yeah, a scripture is, is full of uh, illustrations of how God wants us to live in an ethically diverse world from the book of Deuteronomy, which gives uh, descriptions of how the alien is to be treated, to uh, uh, Revelation. Listen to this passage from Revelation 7. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Hmm. A, a, a description of a multi-ethnic worship uh, event in Revelation. But this question for, again, uh, uh, Peter and Louise. Uh, many people point to the heavenly vision, like that one described in Revelation 7, as a vision for uh, planting multi-ethnic churches. But is this realistic considering language, culture, and class barriers? Don't immigrants need monocultural churches to provide the support they need in a new culture? For example, the Korean churches that Peter's described, Chinese churches that uh, uh, Lena's had some experience with, Latino churches. Uh, in other words, is, there, uh, is this realistic to have a multi-ethnic uh, church of this type? Uh, how, how does that fit with our uh, vision of what the church should be? Well, in case of uh, immigrant churches, because of language barrier, there needs to be this ongoing work of immigrant churches bringing the gospel to their immigrant ethnic communities using the heart language that people know. And particularly because immigrants are longing for things of their homeland, it makes sense to bring the gospel in the language that they are thirsting to hear. So that's a, I, I would say amen, that the first generation immigrant churches continue to meet in their own context of worship using the language that their people will hear. And earlier in my brief uh, biblical reflections, I shared how God really uses this immigrant context to bring so many people into God's kingdom. Having said that, a lot of these immigrant churches are now losing their second generation, ironically. Because the second generation are those who are born and raised in the United States. They only usually know English language, or that's their heart language. And many are now leaving their parents' immigrant churches because they're not feeling the connection with the ministries. Then the question mark is, where can they go spiritually? And many of them are actually Christians, right? Uh, so might there be churches like Faith, 
and other churches that are already feeling this calling of uh, a sense of calling to do intercultural gospel ministry that we've been doing for so many decades, sending missionaries to overseas. Can this be a welcoming space for second and third generation ethnic minorities who are no longer feeling at home in their own churches? Right now, InnoVarsity Christian Fellowship, one of the fastest growing student population in our ministry is Latino second generations. They still have a hunger for God, hunger for God's word, but often they don't feel exactly at home in their own churches, right? These are now new mission opportunities for all churches in America. There's a joke in a, it's a sort of a joke. Uh, many of you know Redeemer Presbyterian Church of Dr. <coughs> Tim Keller. So people say that is the largest Korean-American church in New York City. Well, that's because even though it started as an Anglo church, it is bringing in so many second-generation Korean-Americans who are working in Manhattan but are looking for a good spiritual home. And I would say, say to Tim Keller and his church leadership, thank you for welcoming many of the second-generation young people into your congregation and allow them to feel at home. So I was challenging elders this morning of this church. Yes, with the first generation immigrants, faith church's ability to welcome them into our English worship service might be a real challenge. But within 10, 15 years, their children, the second generation that are growing up, they will need a spiritual space will this church be ready to welcome them in is a question that I pose to the elders. Yeah. Luis, you have, uh, you've had some experience in an immigrant yes. church. Uh, what's your my first church, we started, it was a Spanish church. I was called to, to my first ministry after I graduated from seminary. And then after a while, I was preaching and teaching and sharing. And in the back, I noticed the young people. <laughs> You know, at first I was offended. You've had that experience. You know what I mean? But, but then I realized it wasn't that. I talked to them. I hang out with them. And I said, what's going on with you guys, you know? He said, well, Pastor Louis, we, you know, we don't understand Spanish that much at all. We're kind of like, you know, we're so into English and everything else. I said, really? So after talking with them and hanging out with them, uh, youth, uh, and we did everything in the, in the youth in English, uh, then I shared with them, would you guys be interested? Maybe we would start a worship's time. And so a year later, you know, we started a second service in English with a young, just a handful of young people. So I thought, as soon as I announced it, we had 30, 40 people. And in less than a year, we had the same size congregation as the Spanish. And then it started growing more. Well, you know, I started realizing, and this was way back in the early 80s when there weren't a lot of books written on multi-ethnic and what to do. I was learning the hard way. But I realized also that that happened with some other groups that Susan and I had an opportunity to minister to, the African church uh, and from the Congo in Des Moines. They were also having services in Swahili, and the kids are in the back, you know, kind of falling asleep. And I, up to the, the fact that the pastor who had seven kids would tell me, my two oldest kids don't want to come to church. Wow, why don't they? They don't want Swahili. Really? So coaching, encouraging again, and they started to minister to the youth and have a separate service to minister to them. 
Same thing happened with the Chinese church in Ames, Iowa. Same thing. And then I talked to them about it, and I, I said, you know, you need to do something for the English because they didn't want to hear uh, the Mandarin. So from experience, I learned that what Peter's saying, you know, the second and third generation, if the, the church is not adjusting or changing both, both cultures, both cultures, we're losing them. And I really believe in my short experience of seeing uh, the younger generation, especially uh, uh, young people from different ethnic groups, we're losing them. We're losing them. They're getting caught out there. There's not connection. I know many, I, it's, it's sad, many free churches I tried to get the youth ministry to involve them in there, they didn't feel accepted. They didn't feel wanted. They weren't encouraged, you know? And so it's kind of like we have to go after them and encourage them, not say, hey, you know, we're going here. You guys, come on, show up. That doesn't happen with ethnic people. You know, they just, a whole bunch of reasons. So uh, there's an intentionality that we have to take to really go out. Or as Peter said, as years go on, we're going to lose that, those generations. And yet on the opposite side, when we're gaining them, then the health and the depth of the church is exciting. Mm -hmm. Because they, ans they answer to the balance of what's happening in the, in the multi-ethnic communities. Mm -hmm. They understand it. You see, some of our children and young people, they don't have any problem sitting next to anybody of a different color, different background, anything like that. They, they enjoy hanging out with them, in fact. We're the ones that have a tough time with them, especially when your boy comes home and says, I'm, I'm dating an, you know, an Afro-American girl. What? <laughs> you know? And uh, there are the percentage... Statistically, I forgot what the st I'm not into stats, but I remember one of them is saying that by two, 20, 2040, it's 50, uh, I forgot, 20. Anyway, so many, there will be a large percentage of mixed marriages. Dual culture, you know, do people from different cultures marrying each other. That's, that's going to be a growing trend. Well, just think about it. If that happens, are they going to feel accepted to come to, you know, our church, you know, an Anglo church that really receives them and loves them and so on and so forth from the diversity of backgrounds. See, uh, you know, Susan's family had to put up with me right from the beginning, you know. <laughs> and she said she was going to marry a Puerto Rican. Well, chihuahua, you know. <laughs> yeah, my three sisters do too. So it's kind of went both in. In fact, I remember my mom when I was dating her. Are you what? What happened to Puerto Rican girls? Yeah, you know, they're over in Puerto Rico. <laughs> so you know, even as my mom was a spiritual inspiration in my life, but she, you know, she had to deal with that. And she was mine too. Yeah. So it's kind of like that's the reality of cultures and different people, and, and you know, yeah. but to answer the question, you know, yeah. We, we, we have to do intentional and think that five years from now, 10 years from now, this area around here is going to be huge in second and third generations of Latinos and other cultural groups. And we have an opportunity to reach <coughs> over We can't keep doing things the same and expect uh, right. uh, things to happen right. I'm going to ask at least one more question for the panel here, but I, I'm inviting the, 
the audience now to be thinking about questions you might want to ask the panel uh, after this. Uh, for both Curtis and Jeff here, uh, what are some fears that church members might have if their leadership develop a vision of their church becoming multi-ethnic? It's kind of a, a next question after the last one. Uh, if, if it's not, if it's realistic to be multi-ethnic, what happens when we think of it uh, and go that direction? I think one of the initial fears is is this this whole issue that those that are there may be forgotten or that we may lose some of our cultural distinctive that kind of made the church what it is. And so it's really fear driven, which isn't good, uh, but yet it is a it is an understandable fear in that will we lose what we have? And especially as you start getting into some of the more ethnic cultures, are we going to lose our cultural ethnicity um, as we expand or as we open to multi-ethnic? And, and I would say the goal is that you embrace the other ones as well as your own and learn the celebration together. And so the music may be a little different or there may be additions to it. It may not, it, it may not be just this kind of music or this particular style, I should say, of music. Um, but the words may be the same, but the arrangements may change. We've seen that happen even with ourselves, is that the words may change, but the arrangements may be different. And the way that the music is actually played, or, um, or you may see some additions from another culture added into your worship experience. And so um, I would say to calm the fears is that you tell them, um, Embracing other cultures does not mean letting go of ours. Hmm. It actually means bringing them all in, and it really is a strength of the gospel. If, if we say the gospel is as powerful as it is, and if it can transform the lives of people the way that it says that it can, and it can, then we should not be afraid of it transforming our lives. How we express it should still be governed by that gospel that changed our lives. I'm willing to embrace someone else's culture. I remember for me, um, growing up in New York, the minority in that most of the people in my church were from the Caribbean. My parents were from the rural South. They were both farm kids. And after leaving the farm in North Carolina, they migrated north and, and, and got jobs and they raised us in Brooklyn. But the church that we attended, most of the, 95% of the people that attended this church were from the Caribbean. And boy, the music was totally different. And I loved it. I mean, I, 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 I became a percussionist. I played the drums of this church as a teenager. And it was, I remember my first challenge in learning how to play this Calypso reggae style beat, which I had not been used to. But then came the foods. And then came the expressions, and then my friends' base, and, and, and there were so many things that were added to our experience. Now, granted, we did not lose those distinctives of growing up in the southern part of the U.S. at all and appreciated that, but what I had added to it was another culture that enhanced my own. And so it really taught me how to be open and accepting, but it also gave me insight into how to reach people in that environment. And so for me, I would say it, it, it opens the opportunities for churches that allow themselves to be multi-ethnic. 
But the challenge would be helping those that have been there all along realize they're not being left behind, that it is at the foundation of who that church is, and yet we can add to it. Just thinking of Peter's illustration from Psalm 133, I suspect that some of the tribes going up singing that song were using different music. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they, yeah. Uh, different yeah. tribes, the Issachar, the Dan's. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, if I could add one, yes, one yes. comment to our brother Curtis' comment. Um, you know, German uh, poet named Goethe once said this, you really don't know your own language unless you know another. Mm. Right. As we learn another language, it sharpens your appreciation and your knowledge of your own language. And as we learn to embrace another culture, sometimes it really deepens my own appreciation of certain things that I have taken for granted about my culture. Ah, this is a very unique thing about my culture that I wasn't aware of before. Jeff, how about uh, your response to this question about the potential fears of a congregation as leadership moves toward multi-ethnic uh, uh, configuration? Hey, Curtis, I think you, you, you hit it all. Uh, I mean, it, I think it's a potential sense of uh, a fear that our culture, our history, our, our values, the, the way that we do things, the way that we like to do things may get eclipsed, that, that it, that it uh, you know, we had... Uh, at Salem in St. Louis, uh, youth ministry that had really shifted intentionally to try and reach uh, urban culture kids in our community that nobody else was reaching. And uh, those kids would come, some of them on Sunday morning to worship, and they, they didn't dress like most of the people that attended <laughs> church there. And uh, I mean, some things even like that, you need to tell that young man to take his hat off in church because that's disrespectful. Well, I, I mean, I can appreciate that. Sure, that's that's reasonable, but he wasn't being just, he wasn't intending to be disrespectful either, but it's, there's a challenge there that, that we have to work through mm -hmm. uh, in terms of understanding and listening to each other uh, because inherently connecting with people who are different from us are going to surface things that maybe we just assumed are the right way to do things or, or the way that we ought to be singing or worshiping or the kinds of food we ought to be cooking or uh, how long a worship service lasts. Um, I, I, if, we, if we let these people come in, you know, we may be here for hours. And, you know, Anglos, we don't do that. So that's really you're clapping. Yeah, I don't know if that was clapping, yes, we should be here for hours, or no, we shouldn't. But, yeah, okay, well. Yeah, so that's, there, there are a number of those things that, that uh, come to the surface. But it doesn't have to mean that my culture is going to get eclipsed or my culture is threatened or my way of doing things is, uh, you know, is, is going to fade into the background. What it could mean is I get to introduce elements of my culture and history that are important to other people that don't know it yet. But that also means that I'm going to get introduced to other ways of worshiping and eating and singing and praying that, that are meaningful to other people as well. And, and we're hopefully all learning together and growing together. Uh, so it, again, if, it, if it's a competition, yeah, that's fearful. That's, that's threatening. Uh, but if it's growing together and learning from each other, because I loved what you said, Lena, about, uh, in a sense, we're all part of a third culture, yeah. the, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and, and if we're really 
fixing our eyes not on what's below but on what's above. I'm, I'm still white. I'm still American. I still speak English. And that's always going to be part of my identity as long as I'm in this body. But that, that's not the way to do things. And, and I can learn and be blessed by the experiences and perspectives of so many others. It doesn't have to threaten any of those things about me. Uh, it, it helps deepen my worship and my growth and my experience of Christ. Very good, thanks. And I think that all of us that sort of cringe at change recognize the value of uh, diversity and the value of accepting that kind of change that's uh, positive. Uh, any uh, questions that have come up from out in the audience here? There are a couple. Do we have the uh, portable mic someplace here? Steve, uh, Kim, right behind you there. Yeah. Let's, let's get some uh, additional questions. Yeah, so with... Um, uh, Curtis mentioned this, but anybody can answer, I suppose. When, you know, when Curtis, you spoke about um, embracing other cultures and everything, and it brought to mind um, what has been talked about a lot the last few years of cultural appropriation. And so, you know, I think it's a sign of respect to use aspects or engage in aspects of other cultures. So, how, you know, do you? If someone brings an accusation, I guess, how, how do you respond to that? You know, you can't use this style of music or you, you bec because then, because of cultural appropriation, huh? Do you have a, or anybody? Oh, that, that's like a, I don't know, buzz word, I guess now. It's, it's taking, it's um, using aspects of other cultures that are not your own and, and it could be clothing, could be music, could be food or anything. Um, and. I don't know how else to say that. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah, right. other people is are offended by that. Is it diminishing? I, I, I want to share. It doesn't have to be stereotypes. It could right. just, yeah. I want to share one example. Um, I pastored before here in International English Speaking Church in the Black Forest of Germany. And, and um, really, my wife's idea, we decided to have an international Sunday where we wanted to see, um, we see the various cultures we had within the church expressed in the service. And I remember the first service we had, we had 11 different languages used in that service from prayer, from worship. And I remember one, we had um, one of the Korean couples lead worship and we told them, lead it in your language, lead it in your language and you can do a, a stands in English, stands in Korean. Well, what they did is that they posted the words in Korean um, and then, and, and, and then phonetically for us to pronounce and then did it again in English. But one of the things happened there is, is, is all of a sudden, because we had a large um, Korean student population because of the school that met there. And so they were in the church and when they sang those series, I think it was two songs they led, this whole section just stood up and you saw the vibrancy in worship and you saw and I remember the comments afterwards and said, that was the best service we've ever had. <laughs> well, why? Uh, it's because they recognized something of themselves that they could latch onto and worship God through and in. And so I know that that whole cultural appropriation, we're not using it to mimic something that isn't present among us. If the culture is in that church, we are using it for them to, to, to be able to worship the Lord with us and us with them. 
and then to feel a part of this thing together. And, and, and that's what I'm more talking about is that if those cultures are in your midst and you worship in a way or style or language that they're, it just brings them in. And now what also happens is from us, it brought us together and in with them. Number one, how hard it would be for me to learn Korean. <laughs> but the songs that we knew in hearing it sung in another language and then being able to know that, that was something. Even now, we would go to the nursing homes um, in our area for Christmas and we would sing those Christmas songs, but in German. And to sing Silent Night in German, you know, was just, my kids prefer that version now because that's what they're used to singing. But it was something great to be able to sing a song that I'm very familiar with in another language and watch the people from that culture respond when we sang it in their language. I think anyone that's experienced that kind of intercultural uh, connection can affirm what you just said, Curtis. It's, uh, other, other questions that- Before uh, we go to that, may I offer an example, yeah, negative yeah. example of I think what our sister is talking about. As we become more and more intercultural community, we do need to give a careful respect in how we use each other's cultural symbols and language and so forth. So here's a negative example. It was more than 10 years ago, Lifeway, a major uh, publication, came up with a Sunday school curriculum for the following summer, and its tagline was Rickshaw Rally. Now, intention was to introduce American children to Japanese culture. Now, if you open the curriculum box, Everything was shaped in a Chinese restaurant takeout box. Now, first of all, Japanese don't use takeout box, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and then secondly, uh, rickshaw happens to be one of those symbols that many Asian nations now outlaw because they deem it to be uh, one of those legacies of a colonial era where human beings had to use be used like animals, basically, right, to carry others. So for many of them, that's a symbol of shame and exploitation of uh, another human being. Now, if they want to learn about Japan, it seems to me bullet train is uh, what's really <laughs> more, <laughs> right? Uh, why rickshaw? And then finally, the, the vacation song that every, uh, every uh, you know, the, the, the vacation school has a theme song, the theme song uh, first of all, it was in a minor key that was not really singable, but then it got this refrain that was repeated again and again, and it had this phrase, wax on, wax off. <laughs> now, some of you know that's from Karate Kid movie, okay? Now, how is that about Japanese culture? How is a takeout box a Japanese culture? So. So I think intention was good, wanting to introduce American children to Japanese culture, but how they went about doing that was exactly the concern that you're raising. It's a misappropriation of another culture and miseducating the whole generation of American children saying this is Japanese culture. So we need to really be very careful about how we experience and educate the cultural products of other cultures. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
have one other question from the audience here. I think I saw a hand back there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ingrid. Uh, so I'd, I'd like to ask about the sort of the mechanics of being welcoming to those who are, you know, outside your cultural community. We've we've talked both of the um, sort of the letting down of, of barriers in um, at, at Trinity in the in your uh, discussions, but also about um, you know places where. Uh, for cultural reasons, people don't feel welcome. And so, so I guess particular, I'd be interested in hearing from Lena and from um, uh, Curtis especially, but all of you, just in terms of what are those um, experiences that you can remember of both positive and negative um, experiences where people were, were trying to welcome across a, a cultural um, barrier. Any of us have had that kind of experience, uh, being into a, a church not our own, whether it's culturally or ethnically. Well, one of the things I mean, I've I've had experiences on both sides in both church and in parachurch organizations, and um, um, it's dropping some of our stereotypes and assumptions because um, they can get us into trouble. I remember when. I've, and, and I can share it now because I've shared it many times, but I remember when I was coming on staff because I served for several years on staff with Kemp's Crusade for Christ, and at that particular time, they were headquartered in Arrowhead Springs. Um, and so um, I had f flown to California from New York, and I was going to be out there for eight weeks, and we caught the bus from the airport and, 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 and got to the, to the place where <coughs> everyone was going, and the village below, and so they were emptying the van that we were on, and just me, I've always been t taught, just get in and help out. So I helped out with the bags, and then everyone got their bags off, and the people came out to greet everyone, and greeted everyone, and left. And I was standing, and I was like, where did everyone go? And then my bags were out there, and so I started to get this little attitude, and I just heard, just in my head, just, just get your bag and go inside. I said, okay, so I grab my bag, and I go inside, and everyone had already gone on, and I'm looking around to see, okay, who do I need to go to? Where do I go? And I saw one of the persons that were greeting everyone, and I said, okay. He said, I said, hey, um, I'm new here, new staff. Where do I go um, next? And so he says, oh, I'm so sorry. I thought you were one of the baggage guys. And I knew he meant well, but it, it was, I was just like, Wow, you know. Now I could understand the mistake, but I was the only African American on the bus. <laughs> the only, and and he apologized, and I realized he didn't even realize what he said in apologizing. But I but I moved on and had a great experience. But it is it is sometimes when we're welcoming, if we're not careful of our stereotypes of cultures, they'll come out at the worst time when we're wanting to welcome people. But on the flip side, I've been in places to where people have welcomed me and just saying, hi, my name is, what's yours? And it's just starting a conversation. And as if I was anyone else that was there that morning. And I think just being, you know, as you normally are on any given Sunday when you meet people, you just meet people. You know, just as I did today, people come and said, hi, I'm so-and-so. And I said, hi, I'm Curtis. And so the whole, the, the whole point is I don't do anything different, you know, especially if they're coming into my setting. They know it's a different setting. 
than maybe they're used to, but then not being treated as if it's some sort of strange thing for you to be here, you know? Um, and, and I think that just goes a long way in just, I'll tell them, be yourself and just welcome them in as you would anyone else. And as you continue to have more conversation, some of those uniquenesses, some of those differences may pop up, um, pop up and then you ask genuine questions. I've had people say, can I ask you a question? And in the context of what was happening, they were asking me, is it safe to ask you this question? And I was able to let people, yeah, go ahead and ask. And, and then I would say, and don't worry about how it comes out, just ask your question. <laughs> because what I realized they were trying to say is I want to ask you, but boy, I'm afraid I'm gonna get my head ripped off. And I didn't want them to feel that that was going to happen. Uh, Lena, did you have a response to that? How we can uh, be more welcoming to uh, people from ethnic, different ethnic backgrounds? Well, I have been very blessed in all the churches that I was a part in, but also here at Faith, what a lovely, wonderful church. And we feel so loved, but we moved here s less than a year ago, June, <laughs> after 20 years in China. And so I would just relate to one very humorous and funny experience after we came to Faith Church. I've been complimented so many times that I speak such good English. <laughs> and uh, someone asked me, so how long have you been here? I said, oh, it's about six months now. Uh, where were you before? We were in China. Wow, <laughs> you speak such good English after six months. <laughs> and they were like very floored, and I wanted to say I'm very talented, but I didn't. <laughs> so um, I just thanked them, but, uh, you know, but really I have learned Indiana English since the last several months, so, but praise God. I mean, I think the best thing is you cannot avoid it. You know, we are human beings. And so you just laugh and thank God that I'm going to see you in heaven too. <laughs> in, oh, in Chinese. Thank you. I, uh, just anecdotally, I remember a time illustrating how important it is to get names right if you're uh, interacting with a visitor. Uh, John Crocker shared when he was a young, I think he was a seminary student, he visited a small church out in the plains and they didn't often have visitors, and they, they had to write their names down if they were a visitor. And the pastor got up and said, oh, we have a visitor today. His name is Johnny Croker. <laughs> and, and I don't think John even volunteered his presence after that. <laughs> uh, Bob, did you have a? Uh, oh. I'm more interject interjecting. I had the uh, blessing of being part, uh, part of a group at our house last night. And Dr. Shaw gave us um, something that's really uh, resonated with me as far as greeting new people. We have, we don't even un know that we have ways of communicating with people that can be off-putting. Um, and it's, it goes along with how we introduce ourselves. And I'll start with a kind of funny thing. If you grew up in, in St. Louis and somebody says, where do you go to school? They're asking you where you went to high school. I'm like, well, who cares about that? So when we moved there, and they said, where do you go to school? And I said, Northwestern, expecting somebody to be really impressed. And they're like, where is that in St. Louis? And I'm like, so <laughs> anyway, so that just goes 
on that note, he suggested that one of the things we often start with is, um, what, do you, what is your job? What do you do? And depending on the socioeconomic level of the person you're talking to, that could start a conversation very, uh, put some constraints on the conversation or and turn someone off. And just encouraging us, I've just been thinking of, of the first thing is, tell me about yourself or tell me about your family. Now that is something I've just been all day kind of, because actually I'm going on a mission trip in another week and just trying to get that into my head because normally that would be mine. Hi, and what do you do? And your worth is in what you do. And so I just think that is, that was a really, easy thing for me to glom onto and say, there's something that I can change that could impact the way I, doesn't even have to be somebody from another culture, but another, any visitor coming to our church. Tell me about yourself is a very open-ended question and yeah. a good place to start. Good, uh, yeah. Yeah, we've Randy. probably talked mostly about uh, the high level macro concepts of all this, but I'd like to ask one question that might bring it home a little for us. Um, I believe that a lot of people at Faith Church would buy into, and they even understand this goal and this vision that we're talking about. Um, we see the opportunity. We know the people are there within a quarter mile through our Faith International English classes, things like that. We know they're there. But the highest challenge over the years that we have talked about and I think continues to be a stopper uh, is the fact that we are commuters. And uh, it isn't necessarily about culture and race and those things where we could probably point out churches where those are the issues, but it's that we're commuters. So when we talk about being winsome ambassadors, we're thinking about our neighbors in Fishers or Brownsburg or Carmel. We're thinking about the people we work with, which would be a socioeconomic level primarily. Um, we don't think about what's right here around the church because this isn't where we live. So um, that's not some, that's involuntary. Uh, anything you would say about that to advise a church like us, or should we just look at the real world situation and have a little different goal? Mm. I don't know. Mm. Good question, Randy, because uh, that's, that's true, that many of us do come from miles uh, away from Faith Church to, to worship here. Uh, any responses to, uh, to that? question or any suggestions about how we think about mm. uh, our role here on 91st and College? Mm. Or, hmm. I feel that God has always placed the church in a particular community for his overall sovereign purpose. And that's to, the first is to reach the Jerusalem, the Samaria, and the other most parts of the world. And so as the community or Jerusalem is changing, then we as a church need to assess and ask, you know, God, do you still want us to be here and be light and salt and share the gospel? Because the bottom line of everything is to share the love of Jesus and the gospel. That's, that's it. So we will have to adjust and change to be instruments of him through the power of the Holy Spirit to connect with the people in the community but at the same time, that call is personal to our environment and our area also. So that uh, we have a both and area of Jerusalem and Samaria, if I can use that as an example, for uh, our opportunity to share the good news of the gospel. 
uh, as the communities are changing, then I really believe that God is also asking us to change. See? Uh, and some churches, one way they change is completely relocate. They say, we're not here anymore. We're going to build and change, and we're going to move to Fishers or way out there to Westfield or whatever. See, and some churches have done that, okay? That's their choice, and okay. But regardless, at this point in time, those are the questions we have to ask as to the overall sovereign purpose of God and his plan as change has taken place, and change is hard. There's no doubt about it. It's difficult. I think also um, this issue of of both places where I both attend church and where I live, I think is the challenge. How am I involved in what my church is doing or how can I help to, to create something that can be done to make us more intentional in our neighborhood where the church sits? That's one thing in, in, in how I'm involved. Um, our church is in Northwest Indianapolis, um, but we live in Fishers where we live, and so we're in, we're in both communities. And so one of the challenges is how do I engage the people around me? Well, it's, it's in the way that we reach out as a, as a church. One of the things that we, that, one of the ways that, that we did was, was this thing that we call a, a, a back to school, um, back to school backpacks. And, and, and what ended up happening, we had X amount of backpacks filled with supplies, what we decided to do is, is, instead of just giving them out, can we m make an event that would cause us to meet people surrounding it? And so we asked, and some different church members said, I have a popcorn machine, and someone else wanted to do nachos. And before we realized, we had this huge event in the parking lot. And then the, we had these people that came out. We had a, another event like that, and we ended up talking to over 200 people from our neighborhood. Well, the deal becomes we had them just to register so that we know who we met and would invite them to other things, but, but also getting into conversation with them when they arrived. And, and, and that's just one small way, but, but what are some intentional ways that, that we as a church, we have this issue as well, because our church is from all over the city, the members of our church, how do we engage the people there? And so we've come up with some various ways in which they do that, and people serve in different capacities but then the other side is how do I engage with people that are different from me where I live mm -hmm. and that could be in my shops that I that I go to in the in the stores in the places where my kids will play sports and so there's a certain level of intentionality of just getting to know or getting to have a conversation with people that may look a little differently and it is going to be awkward but and at first but the deal is I, I, I really just want to get to know you for us, it's been really important because we know no one. I mean, we moved here from Europe after being away for nine years. And so to come back into the community, everyone was new. And so we go to football games because my sons were playing football, and my wife and I would sit there, and she would go, I want to get to know some people. So she would be more outgoing than I am, imagine. And she would get up, and she would go me, hi, I'm so-and-so, and we're new here. And, and I ended up knowing more people because of her. But it was this whole deal of I want to get to know some people. Well, how do you do? You just introduce yourself because you can do that here. Uh, we wouldn't dare do that in Switzerland and Germany because that culture would frown upon that. But here it's not. And so we find a way 
to get to know people. So I, I think the challenge is in both places, finding out what your church is doing or can do to engage the community, and then how can I be involved in that, and then what am I doing in my own community? Thanks. I think that's very practical. Good question, Randy. Uh, just thinking, you have ELIC, that there are about 100 or more people involved from Bay Church. We have the Good News Club at the uh, Nora School next door to us that's involved with out, outreach to children. And uh, so there are some ways that we can be involved both and, uh, both where we live and uh, here at church. Right. Right. Yep. Well, in fact, there are a couple of sort of final panel for questions for anyone here, just uh, as we end up the panel uh, discussion. Uh, in the publicity for this panel, we stated that Christ-centered relationships are the key to reconciling people of different races, classes, and cultures. Practically, how do we do this? What practical steps can an individual believer take to get to know people who are different ethnically or racially, especially if our neighborhoods are monocultural? That sort of encompasses a lot of the uh, questions we've talked about, but it talks more about practical steps now, too. How do we uh, go about doing that? Are there some things we can apply from what we've talked about tonight? So it was uh, February of uh, 1985. I was still a student at TEDS, but uh, my fiance, uh, Phyllis, was uh, doing medical training at downtown Indianapolis, so she was living here, and she just started attending Faith missionary church. So one weekend I visited her and she said, you need to come with me to this faith missionary church. I just found it through a friend. So we came and worshiped. Right after worship service, a couple behind us tapped our shoulder and said, hello. We are Don and Joanne Fields. <laughs> and then they said, you know, uh, a couple was supposed to join us for lunch. But last minute, they had to cancel out on us. So we have a dinner, for, uh, lunch for four at home, and we're just wondering if you would join us. We didn't have any lunch plan, but we were actually a little thrown aback by the first time meeting person who actually invited us to their home for lunch, so we went. Actually, it was over that lunch table, Don Fields, who, as many of you know, was uh, the area director of university in this area. And when he found out that I'm about to graduate from seminary, <coughs> and I didn't have a clear plan for future ministry in Indianapolis, <laughs> I mean, you could do the, you know, how. <laughs> well, God used that to not only help us to feel welcome at uh, Faith Missionary Church, but that's how I got involved in the university since then up until now. We could call it divine appointment, that God ordained it to happen. But I believe what God also very practically used was Don and Joanne Fields, who had this lifestyle of inviting people into their home so effortlessly. Uh, Joanne used to have this particular baking uh, I forget now the, the name of Sticky Bun. <laughs> that's what it was. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's how she recruited staff workers. <laughs> Sticky Bun. But these are very, very practical things. But, you know, Don and Joanne don't come from the same culture that we do. In fact, we are very, very far apart. But it's her love for people or their love for people opening their home for us. 
just, you know, made visiting Faith Missionary Church more than just one weekend event. And I became a pastoral intern here. We attended here for three years. And then I became lifelong committed uh, partner of uh, InnoVarsity Christian Fellowship. Yes, divine appointment, but it also, God used that, that practical uh, next step of inviting people into their lives. Right? Other responses to the practical steps we can take uh, or suggestions from the, the non-panel audience here? Um, there's another even more general question. Uh, what practical steps can an individual believer take to see things from other people's perspectives? In other words, how can we be good listeners to uh, people that are not from our ethnic background? If we ought to step out of our comfort zones, how do we do that? I think Peter gave one example of how uh, Donna Joanne did, uh, did that in a practical way. Other our churches grow really one person at a time. And so for me to be able to get to know people individually and to develop those relationships, it seems like that's a slow way to do it, but we never know the ripple effect mm. that our relationships are going to have. Um, and I appreciate it just being new, just to, you know, just to use Jeff, I'm using as, as an example in that we were at this pastoral ministerial meeting and he just asked me, he said, hey, are you doing anything after this for lunch? I'd love just to go and sit down and lunch. And, and so we did, and, and, and just this conversation to get to know Jeff better, but it was more than that. It was that him reaching out to, I'm still fairly new here. I mean, I'm, I, I didn't grow up in Indianapolis, although I spent a lot of time before we moved away. Um, but it was those kinds of actions that says, you know, what are you doing for lunch? Or, or what are you doing this evening? Or, hey, you mind going getting some coffee? It's, but it's with those that we usually do not gravitate towards or are uncomfortable towards. And when you make that step that is uncomfortable, um, it begins to break down the walls. The other side is to be a place, I know for me, is to be a place for, for people to have conversations over in, Germany, I, I, I've had several conversations with people that were missionaries from here, but they were over there, that as a lot of the racial tensions were growing over here, wanted to have conversations with me. And so we would sit down for coffee, and it was that typical, can I ask you a question? And my answer was, sure, you can. And, and, and let it be an open dialogue, and that turned into some great conversation and some great deeper conversation on issues and then those friendships end up growing stronger. Mm. And so my deal is, for me, is to allow people to be able to talk to you mm. and it be a safe place to talk, mm. you know, as you get to understand one another and then being willing to drop those stereotypes or uh, uh, those things which tend to be barriers so that I get to know people, mm. really seeking to understand where they're coming from, their perspective. You know, it, it's 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 being willing to be uncomfortable. That it's, I think for me, right, right. I'm, I'm saying, but but it is the reason we don't go to other people, and I'm the same way, is because it's uncomfortable. 
it puts me in an awkward position. And I don't want to feel uncomfortable. And I had to really get to the point where I was okay with that. At my last pastorate, my family and I, we were the only African-American family in that church, and we were its pastor and family. And, and, and there were some times it was really out of my comfort zone. And not only that, we were in this town of 5,000. My high school was 5,000 <laughs> in Brooklyn. And so it was a totally different environment that I would have not chosen necessarily myself. But it was willing to be uncomfortable. And so I would say be willing to be uncomfortable. You're going to make a mistake. I, I, that's, that's going to happen. But be willing to open up and to learn something new and to learn from people. And when they share it, one of the things that was hard for me is when you would share something and people either minimalize it or dismiss it. And then I, I think those things are what we really have to be careful of. And even if we don't agree with it, we hear it, you know, for what it is and, and, and how that person is sharing. Because I'm wanting to get to know you. I'm not wanting to pass my agenda. I'm trying to get to know you. And in knowing you, we'll have deeper conversations. And I may be able to bring you around or you may be able to bring me around as we look and as we journey in Christ together. Does that, does that help? Um, yeah, okay. so maybe if I can add, because what I heard you saying is something about educating yourself versus overwhelming your one friend. And I got you. I'm sorry. Yep. Oh, right. And, and I would say um, if the person becomes a friend, then I think it's not overwhelming for them um, to have, like I have, um, I have a, a one friend um, back on the other side of the water. Uh, so I'm his wife. Um, <laughs> and um, and on, on the other side over there, I made one really, really good friend. Um, and we have lots of tough conversations with one another about um, the different things that she gets from her supporters and what they say and how, what, is, what do I think about these things and she and I can have those kinds of conversations because we're friends um, and she doesn't fear what I might you know how I might react or anything um, and so it's okay for her to bounce off how should I respond to this supporter when they say something like this um, then she's able to um, have a, 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 a nice conversation with somebody who can get what she's asking and not be offended by it I, I'd say don't make the relationship about all those questions either i mean obviously that's part of the relationship but you know if, if the relationship is 80 percent of it is about big socio-political cultural things i mean that's gonna be overwhelming for anyone so um you know just be friends and then out of that context that helps i i would say you know another practical thing just for me what's been really helpful is to change the channel uh, just be willing and intentional to listen to voices and perspectives that I might not normally listen to. Uh, you know, just uh, one example is I, I like to listen to BBC World News. For one thing, I'm getting I'm getting someone else's perspective on what's happening in this country, and I get to find out about a lot of stuff that happens in the world that we never get to hear about here in the U.S. So whatever it is, whatever whatever we normally listen to, what if we were intentional to? listen to somebody that's looking at it from a very different perspective not not to prove them wrong not to you know 
in that we have to, man, it's just our culture is so geared towards priming us to be angry and offended and to force us to choose sides and, and to slap a label and you're with us or you're against us and, you know, those people are trying to ruin everything that's good, right, and lovely and, you know, be angry and pitchforks and torches and, you know, so listen to different voices, understanding that that's a lot of what's happening in our culture and I'm going to be intentional not to buy into it. I'm going to listen to different voices to really try to understand. And of course, we've always got to sort the weed out from the chaff. Uh, but but uh, man, what's been helpful for me is to just listen to a broader variety of perspectives and opinions and reporting and uh, the magazines and the TV stations and the radio and the, and the whatever that, that I listen to that helps me get a, a bigger perspective of how to think about or at least try to understand, even if I disagree with the way somebody's thinking about some issue, can I at least try to understand why they're thinking differently about it instead of just dismissing it out of hand or saying they're crazy or they're wrong or they're stupid or they just don't get it? Or, uh, so change the channel, I think, it can, can be so helpful for, for all of us. Um, and, and yeah, then, then that primes us then to be able to have, I think, um, learning humble approaches and conversations with people who may have a different cultural, political, or racial take on things than we might. Uh, because because I've even done some work in advance of that conversation to try and understand where people are coming from, and now I'm now I'm entering into that conversation even differently. Scripture says, "Greet one another with a holy kiss." So while Latinos like to hug and be affectionate and share, uh, but sincerity. So in our service, in the middle of our service, we have our worship team lead us into caring for one another and greeting one another. Uh, statistics tell us uh, for many, many years, the first 15 minutes of a person coming to church will make a greater impact into that person feeling wanted, received, accepted before they hear the music and before they hear the sermon. So I think there's a lot to say. The world and its society has gotten that. You know, as soon as you walk into a store, hi, how are you? You know, they greet you. Walmart's been doing that for umpteen years. You know what I mean? <laughs> But you know, you kind of say, wow, that was, that was surprising, see? Uh, and so I think we can surprise some people on Sunday morning or other times when we just say, hi. You know, you know just lastly, I think the issue too with that is, <coughs> is um, going to places that we maybe not have gone, like for instance, um, MLK 50 or MLK Day just passed by. Now, we had to take our sons um, there this time because they've had no African-American history for nine years except what we told them. <laughs> and so we made our way down to the Indiana State Museum there and, and, and walked through, and my sons at the end were like, wow, that was great. You know, but it was his information. But I, I'm, I'm thinking, how many else, I mean, how many others would need to go to some other cultural event to learn some information. I'm not just talking about just African-Americans either, but any other culture, and to be able to get some information on your own in their environment for some of the things that are going on. Because what that does, which is what Jeff says, it helps to sensitize us and to humble us. One of the things that helped us a lot is being Americans in a non-American world. You know, 
um, that helped us so much because it helped us to see the sun didn't revolve around us <laughs> and, that, and that people really didn't care what we thought <laughs> in that environment. And so it was for us to really learn and people would marvel at our level of German. My sons are much better. But I would say I'm in Germany. I need to learn and understand this culture. And it gave us so much more entrance with people as we did. And one, one other practical yeah. thing. Uh, I would say to just pray. Um, what, what might God do if we just intentionally prayed, God, help me connect with someone today. Help me look at the relationships that people are going to come across today as opportunities to reflect you and, and to get to know someone who maybe knows you and is different from me or somebody who doesn't know you. Uh, you know, I, what, whatever activities you have. You know, I, in St. Louis, I, I haven't found the, the context here, but I play tennis. And uh, I thought, well, I'm going to play tennis. i got to play tennis with somebody. I could play tennis with unbelievers. I could play tennis with people who are different from me. Uh, you know, we're gonna, Joey, uh, Pastor Joey does a great job of this in his neighborhood. I mean, he's just, he's got a neighbor, he saw a neighbor who was working on a fence project in his yard and he just walked over, hey, can I help you with that? Because he, you know, he's handy with tools and he likes woodworking and so it became an opportunity to connect with a neighbor, get to know someone that, that didn't know Jesus and start to just develop a relationship around something that he was already interested in that became a context for him to get to know somebody who was different from him. And, and now they, they've got like a dozen chickens, Joey and Jenna, that they raise in their backyard. And, and now they've kind of become a focal point in the neighborhood. Like that's kind of unusual, that's cool. And so they've got people that want to come by and visit the chickens and yeah, come on in, let's, you know. So there's just, there's all these opportunities of things that we're already doing in our lives that don't have to be, let's add one more thing, but it could be, hey, let's get together and watch the Olympics together and cheer for other countries or learn about some of, you know, some of these other athletes from other countries. And uh, I mean, there's just, when you start intentionally praying and looking for those opportunities, what could God do with that? Do I believe that he would actually honor that prayer, that he would help me find ways to connect because I, I would be doing it to honor him and, and to try to reach out to people in the name of Jesus. I want to echo that, that role that prayer can play in addressing many of the things that we are talking about today. Um, so I've shared that mosaic gathering that's taking place on our campus. About five, six years ago, four Caucasian and one Asian American seminarians from that mosaic community decided to relocate to a community that's 15 minutes away from Divinity School. Our Divinity School is located in a very affluent part of the city. But 15 minutes north is a predominantly black, Hispanic, under-resourced community. And the students moved there and rented a house together. But one of the things they did, every night they had a prayer meeting, praying for local churches in that community, praying for the school district in that community. And Thursday night, they always prayed for the mayor and the city council. And in order to pray more informed way, sometimes they went to the city council meeting to hear what they are really talking about and what challenges they are facing. And that they would pray more informatively about that council every Thursday night. Well, one day, mayor called this house up and said, hey, someone told me that every Thursday night, you guys are praying for me and our council. Is that true? And 
the student said, yes, every Thursday night we're doing that. And then he said, you know, I'm going through a particularly difficult time right now. He's a, turns out he's a black Baptist church deacon. He said, can I come to one of your prayer meetings? I feel besieged. So he came to this one of his prayer meetings of our divinity school students who are living in his town. And they laid hands on him and prayed for God's anointing power on this mayor. He was so deeply moved by that prayer. Whenever they have a difficult council meeting, they would always ask one or two of these seminarians to come. You don't have to say anything, you just sit back there, pray, because I really need God's prayer for this. Well, last year, this uh, mayor gave us Mosaic Ministries old library building that's not being used currently for $10. So now we inherited this new building. We're in the process of renovating it, trying to use it for God's ministry in that community. But it all goes back to these students committing themselves to praying for God's work of healing, God's work of justice, and so forth. So I, I, you know, we're talking about many things, but one of the most powerful resources God has given us is a power of prayer. Can, can we as God's people pray for a number of these things that we've been talking about, right? Yeah. I think that's, that's a good ending, actually, for our uh, discussion because we've not answered all the questions. Uh, but I think we all have the opportunity to pray, uh, which I'll do here just a minute and then give Steve a chance to uh, direct us toward the desserts. But thanks to Steve and Joan for uh, setting things up for us tonight and thinking of this panel discussion. Let's, let's end in prayer together. Father, we are grateful that uh, your word describes uh, a time when we will all meet and worship together as one community, uh, a time that we can only imagine now, but uh, recognize that you have given us guidance about how we are to live both individually and uh, as a Jesus-following community here on earth. Uh, so as we've talked tonight, as we've uh, grappled with some questions about how we can do that, uh, we ask for your guidance. We ask for your motivation for our uh, prayer uh, to be directing us in the future. Uh, we're grateful that you have given us uh, a view of the world uh, around us and through our missionary family often given us glimpses of that world, but we're also grateful that that world resides within a mile of us here at uh, 91st and College. Uh, so give us an understanding of how we as uh, the followers of faith uh, here and uh, at churches around the community can be uh, better your representatives in uh, drawing people into your kingdom. Yes. Uh, thanks for each member, member of the panel, for the people that came tonight. May you continue to guide our spirits uh, through the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I just want to uh, add a bit of correction. It wasn't just me and Joan who organized this event. There was a team, there's a mosaic team. There were other people who served, um, who um, uh, helped in many different ways. So this is uh, a, certainly a, a group effort. We want to thank you all for coming. I first of all just want to thank the panel for all their time. Let's give them a hand of applause. There are some dessert and uh, I believe decaf coffee back there, um, water as well. There is also uh, a sheet with some recommended reading by some of our panelists 
and our Mosaic team. Um, so feel free to take that. I think one thing to be thinking and praying about is, is this something, is this a conversation that God might want us to continue? Um, so won't answer that, but it's just a thought. So again, thank you again for coming.